Weather Trucker, and we're at the Fallon Forum here, folks, live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. A quick shout-out to some of our local small business supporters. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland. That's in Sherman Hill. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Thanks also to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices and really friendly, cool, awesome, nice service. And finally, thanks to Namaste Restaurant at 7500 University Ave in Clive, just across the Windsor Heights line. Great uh, Indian food from both the northern and southern parts of the country. That's Namaste Restaurant. Okay, later in the program, Tulsi Gabbard is going to join us. But we've got a second presidential candidate with us today, and that is... Former Admiral and U.S. Congressman Joe Sestak. Joe, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks great, for having me aboard. Great to have you here. Uh, you're, uh, again, you were the, a congressman from Pennsylvania years back. That's right. A nearly two-to-one Republican district. I was the second Democrat since the Civil War. Yeah, wow. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's an effort. It now, you also um, you walked across Pennsylvania when you ran for the U.S. Senate. I did. And I did it for a reason. It was... After the Tea Party and after the Great Recession, and I felt people wanted to know if I knew what they had gone through. So like that great book, To Kill a Mockingbird, with Scout, the young daughter of the, uh, of the you know, major character, says, you can't know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around with him. And, you did and so I walked 422 miles with a town hall every day, whether it was human trafficking or whether it was small business creation, because I wanted people yeah. to know that I understood and would listen to what they were up to. And you didn't win, I assume. But no, it was, a very, it was kind of an interesting thing. I had uh, a call from Washington, D.C., where a senator who was responsible for all the fundraising for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee said, Joe, stop walking. <laughs> he said, just go back and fundraise. Said, oh, my gosh. People actually want to know yeah, if I know them. I and know. I told him how a Republican had called, opened up the door of his uh, uh, car dealership and called out to me, hey, Admiral, because he see, I saw me in my flight jacket and I'd been on TV a lot. Right. I'm a Republican, but I love what you're doing. And, you know, they eventually, as you know, 2016 wasn't a good year because my party – along with others, forgot it was about people, right. not just fundraising and money. And was that a Democratic primary that you were running in? Or was it yes, a- it was. And right. after that call, um, my party's leadership in Washington, D.C. sought out someone else to run against me, a pharmaceutical lobbyist. Oh, and nice. the year of draining the swamp. We put Mr. a pharmaceutical lobbyist. Right. And though I narrowly lost after my party put more money in against me because they didn't like my independence wow. than they did against Mitch McConnell. Two years earlier. Wow, congratulations. Yep. And uh, over $6 million was spent. At, and that was for TV ads from the DSCC, yeah. but totally, but with $6 million. Then they lost because they were able to, the Republicans say, in the year of the swamp, how can mm-hmm. you have a revolving door type of lobbyist? Right. Uh, as and what year was that? 2016. Okay, so. And so that, that's when it happened. But look, uh, did I love it? I did. And was I fortunate? Yes, I was. Because after I went home last year, my daughter's brain cancer came oh, back. Yeah. Only 8% of kids have ever survived it. And right. in fact, that's the reason I got out of the military after 31 years to be with her when mm-hmm. it first came at four years old. And she beat that demon. That's good. When it came back yeah. a second time and she got into a safe harbor, that's why I got in this presidential race just last June. Because I honestly believe we need someone who can represent all Americans, even mm-hmm. Republicans, and unite this country again. Yeah, and well, that's certainly, it certainly is a very divisive environment right now. Uh. Well, one more comment about walking. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Dick Clark. Mm-hmm. Back in well, there's a lot of Dick Clarks out there. Right. Back in '72, an Iowan named Dick Clark mm-hmm. walked across Iowa back and forth several times. I knew he had walked across. And he won. And, yes. he, and he said that was – he credited his walking yeah. across the state for his victory over an incumbent U- it's U.S. In, senator. It's interesting. Uh, the Senator Pat Toomey, who beat the uh, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee leadership-designated nominee, uh, when she was running against him after she lost, he – Pat Toomey's campaign manager said, you know, they should have gone with Sestak. 
He actually had a better feel for yeah. people. Well, you get a good walk. feel doing and that. And I think you know? Dick Clark had it right. Yeah. And that's what's happening today, quite frankly. I think Mr. Trump's not really the problem. He's the symptom of a problem where people understand the system is broken, that in Washington, D.C., they ultimately care more about their position, their power, lobbying money than they care about people. Right. Now, you're, you're a self-described moderate. I would say I'm a progressive pragmatic. Okay, so, I, thought, I, thought I, heard, I thought I heard somewhere that you described yourself as people characterize me. For, so, for example, if I could, in the military, everybody has health care. Sure. In the military, you can't be promoted above a certain rate or rank unless you have at least an associate's college degree or a master's degree, to many if you're an officer enlisted, and come on in and earn a pension. Everybody in the military is pretty progressive, <laughs> but it's pragmatic. <laughs> Because we make sure that we can pay for it and make it accomplished. So that's kind of where I am. But I make sure that my ideas are one that can be accomplished because it's not just a Medicare for all, but how do you get there? Because in the military you learn piss-poor planning gives piss-poor execution. Hmm. And so sometimes because I'm saying let's make sure our government can execute it well, people might say he has a moderate way to get there, a cautious way to get there. And I think that's wise. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, and I mean, we have quite a spectrum of candidates running. Yes. And people have different ways of categorizing where they are with, with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on one side and Joe Biden and Steve Bullock on another, I suppose. And, and where, do you, where do you fit in that paradigm? Or is that just an artificial construction that really matters I, I not? I think it might matter to some people. I just tell everybody I'm yeah. an American. I happen to be an independent in the military who became a Democrat, and I still describe myself that way. Let me give you an example of what I mean. There has been candidates that have said, let's forgive all college loans. So I pause and say, okay, I understand this is a burden. Two percent of those who graduate in 2005 have a debt, student debt, of greater than $50,000. So it's two percent that have that massive amount. So how can we better do this than just saying, the blue-collar worker, if you forgive it, has to pay for it in the taxes mm -hmm. that have to pay for the debt. Mm -hmm. So I say there's a repay program in our government. We're not using it where we should make it mandatory that everybody's in it and they don't have to pay any more than 10% of their income. So if they have no income, they don't pay right. anything, so or you, I'd lower that to 5%. And if you're well-heeled, you pay it all. So, and okay. after, I right. believe after 20 years, the lower income shouldn't have – it should be – you mm -hmm. know, it's over. So there's a way to address these things sensibly. I still accomplish the same goal, but in a way I think that is fair. Same thing on free tuition? Yeah, I, I honestly do believe Means that. Means tested? So exactly. So let me give you an example. Okay. Yes, exactly. So like let's take Harvard University. Sixty percent of people two years ago came from private schools. They say they have diversity, but right. it depends on how you look at it. 60% of the incoming class at Harvard. Right. 60% okay. of the incoming freshman class about two years ago right. all came from private schools. So yeah. even in education, there's inequity, and that's why there should be – I mean, shouldn't they be paying for something where those, those that grow up in, let's say, a place in Philadelphia where several of the smaller districts, the poor income, the infant mortality rate, the children mortality rate is higher than it is in Syria. Mm. Well, I mean, where's the equity for that? So I do believe it should be means tested. I want to talk a, a bit more about foreign policy, but first, because uh, I'm going to talk about climate change, which is both domestic and foreign. It's a it's national security policy. issue. Right. Yeah, what's your take on the climate crisis? How do you propose to address that? Well, I uh, honestly do believe that people have to recognize that 85% of the damage that is going to come from greenhouse emissions comes from abroad. Now, we have to take care of our own 15% here to show the leadership, to show that we can have the commitment, and to show that we can bring to the world the technology that's needed to convene the whole world in order to bring to zero by 2050 the global greenhouse emissions. But if we don't start here at home, then we can't do it abroad. And do we have to do it abroad? You bet. You think Saudi Arabia, who's in the news today, yeah, they will, about, about oil, yeah. they yeah. will actually be using as much energy to power its air conditioning in 10 years as it exports in oil today. So we need to restore U.S. leadership, demonstrating we have a commitment here, mm -hmm. and reconvene the Paris Accord to make everyone meet their commitment. And the big deal in Iowa has been the Dakota Access Pipeline, which uh, unfortunately uh, was built over the objection of farmers and landowners and Native communities and environmentalists, and a lot of folks who just saw it as damaging both in a, from a climate point of view and a water quality point of view, and in terms of the abuse of eminent domain. Now the uh, the company wants to come back and double the flow of oil through the pipeline. 
Is that something you're willing to take a stand on? Well, I already have, Bill, as you know, we've just talked about this, as well as the X, uh, Keystone, XL Keystone Pipeline. And the reason is, look, I stood for a moratorium on fracking, for example, in Pennsylvania. Because by law, you're not allowed to go in and inspect what kind of damage is being done as they do these small explosions underground. And as a consequence in Pennsylvania, we've had water be spoiled by the damage they're doing. In the military, you learn expect what you inspect. Mm -hmm. And so what the challenge is with the Dakota, the others, is that two. One is that, as across rivers, as you know, and, mm -hmm. and all, that you can have these oil spills where it's going to go from high 500,000 barrels per uh, you know, minute all the way to 1.2 per day, excuse me, per uh, 1.2 billion million barrels per day. And so what does that mean on the pressure that's going through the pipeline? The second is just climate change itself. Mm -hmm. We need to end these fossil fuel subsidies. We need to move off of fossil fuel. That's why I proposed a carbon fee dividend. Which by 2050, if we start with it at $15 a ton, moving up $10 each year, it can eliminate, some by some estimates, 98% of all CO2 emissions. This is important because it uses a market mechanism, much like we use for acid rain, to get rid of acid mm -hmm. rain. It's a different type of market mechanism to where, okay, you put this $15 fee on polluters, they may raise the prices, but the person... The citizen gets it back, that $15, in a dividend right to but, them, but, so they don't really pay it. But are we end. to the point where that kind of um, almost free market approach is almost uh, impossible to – it's never going to produce enough response to address the problem given how extreme the situation is? Oh, it's only one of many responses, but it is the one that's going to take care of a major portion of it, like it proved itself using the market mechanism in acid rain. Do you have to do other things like stopping all drilling offshore and in the Arctic refuge? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's why I was for a proposal for moratorium in Pennsylvania as I ran for, for my Senate race. Does that also mean that we move to move all subsidies away from fossil fuels and move them into green energy? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Does that also mean we need to take some of that money from the uh, fees that are placed on it and put it into technology that is useful today, can work, mm -hmm. but cannot be cost efficient to reach up into the atmosphere and pull CO2 out of it. I think, yeah, more and, and more people are saying we've got to do something with sequestration The best that's out well. there that's been demonstrated mm -hmm. is DAC mm -hmm. technology. It's trillions and trillions of dollars till we do what we did with literally in many technologies make them cost efficient. Yeah. And so those types of things, yes, there's many, many, many ways we've got to do this. So I only mentioned the carbon fee one because it does have some bipartisan support, as you know. Yeah. We're going to have to make sure this, all of this stuff gets through. But so, that's a, that one, I think, will have people jumping on board a little easier. So to the issue of pipelines, I know there was one proposed for your uh, congressional district, I think Sunoco and Energy Transfer Partners. And a lot of concern was that it was going through you know, neighborhoods, uh, urbanized areas, uh, near schools and other places where, uh, you know, they were particularly sensitive in case there was an accident or even the construction element. And that was something you opposed, I believe? Well, as you can see, it's still on my website. When you asked us for yeah. the Dakota to do the uh, – to talk about it, I also put that right. in there at the time. <clears throat> Look, if you accept that climate change may be the most catastrophic, and I think it is the most catastrophic threat to mankind, then you have to have the courage, as I did in my nearly two-to-one Republican district, where I was voted, uh, said to be by the Sierra Clubs and others across Pennsylvania, the most pro-environmentally uh, friendly congressman. But I explained it to the nearly two-to-one Republican district, and they reelected me by 20 points, and didn't spent a penny on an ad. Mm -hmm. People have to learn how to talk with people. That's why I did that walk across it. But now take other challenges in foreign policy. I mean, today, you actually have an oil facility where 50% of the oil has been closed down because, uh, uh, because of the bombing. Yeah. Why did this happen? Well, step back. And you can see that, do we need someone in the White House who actually understands the world? We still don't know who did that. Well, I mean, they have Yemen, now. A Yemen, uh, Yemen terrorist group claimed credit, but right. now there's some suspicion as to whether or not they actually did it. Right. And that's why you need someone to step back with 31 years of experience in this area, having worked for President Clinton as his director of defense policy and putting together the national security strategy, understand how did it initially begin? Now, the intelligence in this morning, about an hour ago, indicates it may have, it definitely was probably Iran, 
but it appears now it may have actually been from Iran. We don't know that last piece because Mr. Pump, the Secretary of State has said that, um, but we want to make sure that it's there. But right. remember how this happened. We had actually broken our word after we had convened the world with strange bedfellows of China and Russia to force Iran to get rid of its nuclear weapons-making capability. They would have had two nuclear devices in 30 days when that happened. Then they, they kept their word, and we broke ours under this administration. And now, because we put even more sanctions on them when we had taken them off because they were keeping the, they, in the agreement, its oil production and its economy is plummeting. And so they've been left felt unrestrained to do mischief. Mm. And now we're on the cusp of a conflict. We really do need someone who understands this world and how to prevent war and bring about peace and prosperity and meet the real defining challenge of our time, climate change. Are there any wars in recent memory that you think were sensible that, that we needed to accomplish? Well, I, let me talk about two of them. I mean, all right. I mean, since World War II, is there any, any foreign policy and intervention that you could take? I, well, example that you would probably walk with is a source of a tragic misadventure was Iraq, where those who were even running today for president voted for that tragic war because mm. they didn't understand military stop problems. They don't fix them. However, the fact that America had been struck in 9-11 mm-hmm. and then the administration did say to the Taliban, kick out al-Qaeda and we won't come in, given an opportunity, and they refused. And then I do think that that was a just response to it. The problem was that the administration then went into that tragic misadventure of Iraq. And I was on the ground at the beginning of the war. I headed the Navy's strategic anti-terrorism unit, and then I commanded a carry battle group during the strikes. But when we went to Iraq, we took our time and resources away from leaving behind a stabilized country. Because, Bill, as I was mentioning out there in the lobby, (laughs) if we had fixed the illiteracy rate of women in Afghanistan, which was 98 percent when I was on the ground there at the beginning of the war for a short period, we would do more to fix the global war terror than our military, which can only stop problems. And even today, 18 years, we're trying to stop it because we took our assets, our focus – all the way to Iraq. And so the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said in testimony, you know, in Iraq, we do what we must. In Afghanistan, we do what we can. And so (laughs) we could have done that and then left behind a society where we had women's rights and education addressed. So, hey, uh, a quick question. Um, You've been been traveling a lot. You you got on the race very late, and there are some folks saying, whoa, why now? Not any later than Bill Clinton when he got in. He actually got in the same month I got in years ago. So the common establishment yeah. wisdom is yeah, – those are, those are different yeah. times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now, now John Delaney runs for president three years ahead of the caucus. Yeah. You know, I guess is, like Jimmy Carter did. Well, and right. John Delaney is not going particularly well too. He's not uh, – We're actually ninth right now in the polls in Iowa. Are you? Ahead of John Delaney and others. Yeah, we're and, in the middle of the pack after only about – I think it's been nine weeks. So we've just started. extensively here. You're not walking everywhere, but you're still here. We leave here. After this, we go to two events that will get us in the rolls where people don't tend to go. Yeah. And I, I'll be back about midnight tonight, back in Des Moines <laughs> at the Econo Lodge. So what, 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 what are your one or two most interesting stories about your time in Iowa? Oh, I love the parades. Parades. Because as I called somebody once and asked, could we be in the parade there? And how many people? They said, well, we haven't had a parade for about four weeks. So I think there's going to be a lot more people. <laughs> and uh, they love parades. And I love parades because it's the best door-to-door you can do. My volunteers go ahead of me passing out brochures. And as I come up, there's a picture of me briefing President Clinton in the White House in uniform because I was his direct defense people policy. People say brochures, I want candy. And, well, not in this case. They're reading it, and I'm right behind them okay. because they got something all of a sudden to look at. Right, right. And I run over and said, that's me, a retired Navy admiral. Take me home tonight and read about me. And, you know, one out of four people, and here's the, to the answer to your question. Say to me, thank you for your service. Mm. I'm taken with the respect that Iowans, Republicans and Democrats have for those who've served, such as I have, for 31 years. But it also compels me to even work harder because it says to me, yes, this nation needs someone who can unite the country again. Or we're not even going to be able to pass climate change policy. Mm. And so that, to me, was my most favorite. Is Iowa niceness real? Yes, it is. <laughs> well, 
Sometimes to a, a fault. Anyway. <laughs> well, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad uh, to be with you, Ed, again. Folks, our guest has been uh, Ab- former Admiral and U.S. Congressman Joe Sestek from uh, Philadelphia area, Pennsylvania. And you'll probably be seeing him around Iowa. And again, he's getting in the race uh, later than some Democrats, but as he pointed out, he's, he's uh, polling ninth. So that's pretty impressive. Wow. Again, appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, when we come back, a second presidential candidate will be joining us in the studio, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Thanks, folks. And uh, again, we're broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. And I want to take a second to thank some of our local business partners for their support. Uh, Gateway Market and Cafe, my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway Market also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage. Uh, don't toss your old car yet, folks. Take it to Sergeant's. They'll give you a fair price and the right diagnosis every time. And thanks to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. No appointment needed. That's Diversity Insurance. And finally, thanks to Community CPA, with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Uh, owner and founder, Ying Sa, she'll uh, do whatever. You, she, she's got your taxes and accounting questions covered, folks. I've been going with Ying for years. All right, so welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to have Tulsi Gabbard in the studio with us. Thank you. Tulsi is a congresswoman from Hawaii. Yes, sir. Aloha. And Aloha, yes. <laughs> no, uh, no lay today? No, unfortunately, no? we're a little far from home. And oh. the, fresh, the fresh flowers don't always last too long. Well, I see them. <laughs> I, I see your, your folks, uh, even at campaign events, sporting those. So yeah, it's, it's been actually theme. really funny and cool that... Uh, wherever we go, even in the middle of winter, both here in Iowa and New Hampshire, we've seen people showing up with their their little plastic luau lays, and it's it's a really well, cool ode to my home state if of Hawaii. You insulate them a bit; they could actually double as a scarf, right? I suppose so. I've never <laughs> thought of that. It's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, great to have you here, and Thank um, you. and uh, you know, your it seems like the theme, the main theme of your campaign is uh, to end the regime change wars. It is focused on the point that our foreign policy cannot be separated from every domestic challenge that we face because of the cost of war. So the experience that I bring serving now as a soldier for over 16 years, still in the Army National Guard, having deployed twice to the Middle East, as well as my service in Congress uh, now for almost seven years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Armed Services Committee, and Homeland Securities Committee, uh, give me that experience and depth and understanding and the conviction necessary to be prepared to do the job of President and Commander-in-Chief on day one and to end these wasteful regime change wars, stop us from starting new ones, and also work to end this new Cold War we're in with Mm. escalating tensions between the United States and other nuclear-armed countries like Russia and China, Mm -hmm. the arms race that is ensuing and escalating, more money coming out of our pockets, uh, ending these wars and weapons and redirecting our precious limited resources, our taxpayer dollars towards serving the needs of the American people here at home. So uh, l- let me ask you, since World War II, which I think was a very different type of war than we've ever seen in our lifetime. Absolutely. Has there ever been a war that the U.S. has initiated or been involved with that's not been a regime change war? Uh, yes. Uh, the war to defeat the al-Qaeda terrorists who attacked us on 9-11. Okay. Uh, unconventional, non-traditional uh, enemy to say the least, but uh, this terrorist group attacked us. Uh, we just observed the 18th anniversary of 9-11 last week, and this war continues because al-Qaeda and their offshoot and affiliate terrorist groups like ISIS, uh, al-Nusra, HTS in Syria, al-Shabaab, uh, they continue to pose a threat to the American people, and we need to defeat them not only militarily, but also mm. we need to defeat that ideology. The, the unfortunate and and um, disheartening thing is that since 9-11, that attack has been used uh, to wage a whole number of regime change wars in countries like Iraq, Libya, ongoing now in Syria, uh, that has cost us as taxpayers trillions of dollars. Of 
mm. trillions of dollars, thousands of my brothers and sisters in uniform who never made that trip home. And foreign lives as well. And the yeah. pain and suffering yeah. and destruction and death in these other countries so, where we've waged these gores. And, and all of this bringing us to the point now where 18 years after that attack on 9-11 by al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda is stronger today than they were back in 9-11-2001. Yeah, and that's scary. And now does this perspective on foreign policy put you at odds with others within the military establishment? I mean, you're a major in the National Guard, but there's folks above you, and how does this settle with them? Well, you know, there there are different personal views that service members have on foreign policy and politics. The thing is that with our service members, uh, we salute the flag. We serve our country. And we take that oath seriously, that oath to protect and defend the American people, our Constitution, and our country. The problem here is with the policymakers. Mm -hmm. General officers and, and soldiers or service members, they're not the ones making the decisions about where to go to war or not to go to war. Uh, very often, those of us who have seen the cost of war firsthand are often the ones who fight hardest for mm -hmm. peace. I think we got to focus on the policymakers, both those who have served in the White House, who are existing, <laughs> currently serving in the White House, as well as members of Congress, mm -hmm. uh, because they are the ones who have uh, either voted for authorizations or made decisions to go and wage these wars, to overthrow authoritarian dictators in other countries, then begin, you know, nation-building efforts in these other countries that end up costing us, both as service members, our veterans, and as taxpayers, so dearly. Yeah. Now, in in, uh, in, in, uh, in standing with your you know, other military uh, personnel, uh, veterans in particular, you went to Standing Rock in yes. December of 2016. We were there at the same time, by oh, the way. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> that was crazy. Wow, how, how it, was, busy it was. It was. But, I was, uh, I was not expecting to see so many yeah. people. Yeah. First of all, how does a Hawaiian do in North Dakota in December? <laughs> well, you were there that same time. <laughs> but I'm an that, island. I'm that, in East That short weekend we were there, there was a blizzard, though. I remember I mean, that. It was, we were it in was a tent. way below zero. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was, I was very, very bundled up. Uh, but it was such an incredible experience to be there as part of a call to serve and protect mm. uh, joining veterans from all across this country, from those who served in many different generations and conflicts, coming to stand to protect water and to protect life. And your, your, your being there was a statement of support for indigenous communities, um, yeah. but, are, but also a statement of opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yes. And right now the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline wants to double the flow of oil through North Dakota, South Dakota, yeah. Iowa, Illinois. And they, they want to increase it to 1.1 million barrels of oil a day, which is tragic uh, in, in terms of climate, but it's also problematic in terms of the probability. The Inevi inevitably, there'll be a spill. Well, there already has been. And yeah. that's been the thing is people who were critical of us as water protectors and those who are opposing the building of that pipeline, especially through the route that they chose, say, oh, you know, technology's advanced so much that these new pipelines, mm. they don't leak. Mm. The ones where you have leaks and spills, those are the old ones that were built so long ago. But it was, gosh, I, I don't know if it was a matter of weeks or months after that Dakota right. Access Pipeline was built that there were already leaks and spills happening. In South Dakota, I believe. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We have not had one in Iowa yet that I'm aware of. Uh, but I, again, it's just a matter of time. And as you increase the flow of oil, you increase the pressure, the heat. And the probability and the, of. And the amount of oil that could yeah, spill. So, exactly. Thank you for speaking out against that. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is um, one of the many reasons why we need to make this transition off of fossil fuels. And you have legislation to do that. I do, to invest in a clean, renewable energy economy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is so important on, on many levels. And we can't afford to wait. And your legislation is called OFF. It is called the OFF, OFF, off Act, OFF Fossil Fuels Act. And it provides a, uh, an actionable plan for us as a country to be able to make that transition uh, over a period of time. Uh, also recognizing that we've got to not only take our taxpayer dollars that are going to subsidize big fossil fuel giants now, but redirect those dollars towards in incentivizing and um, uh, investing in clean renewable energy yeah. and bringing along the workforce with us. And how how is the uh, off legislation different than what some of the other candidates are proposing? How is how is your bill different, or let's say better, than what Joe Biden, what other candidates are offering? Uh, I haven't looked at all of their plans, but I think there's a, a very significant point of distinction between uh, the approach I think we need to take and what many of the other candidates are talking about. Uh, I think nuclear power should not be an option that we consider. 
Uh, it is way, way more expensive and takes so much longer to build and develop than many of the other clean, renewable sources of energy that I think we should be investing in, that we can get up and running more quickly. Uh, what to speak of the fact that uh, it doesn't carry the kind of, of risk and danger that we've mm. seen nuclear power plants uh, can pose. What to speak of the waste that's created that yeah. still there's, there's no place to store this waste in the United States of America and no foreseeable plan to get there. And so what we end up with are communities who are often underserved communities who have piles of nuclear waste sitting in there next to their homes, next to their place yeah. of work and schools, and maybe posing you saw a the risk news, and threat to them. Maybe you saw the news that uh, Japan is going to be le- releasing some of the waste from Fukushima into the ocean. It's very dangerous. I mean, I, look, I come from Hawaii. We share, yeah, we yeah, share, share that ocean, Pacific right, Ocean, right. And, and we're really concerned about yeah. that. Now, um, you know, typically your, your profile is the kind of profile that you would – think the Democratic Party would love. I mean, a, a, you know, an experienced congresswoman uh, who has knowledge of foreign policy, knowledge of domestic affairs, um, who is a not just a, you know, I mean, a lot of times candidates run on the fact that they are a veteran. Well, you're actually active. Yeah. You just got back from Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, you would think that profile would be appealing to more of the, you know, establishment within the Democratic Party. Why is that not connecting? Uh, because I speak truth to power. And the foreign policy establishment, the military-industrial complex, and the partisan powers in Washington, um, they, they don't like people who will challenge their authority and call for accountability and speak the truth about the cost and consequences of the decisions um, that our leaders have been making. So whether we're talking about on the political side, calling for fairness, transparency, and accountability, uh, you know, after those 2016 elections, there were a lot of people who were very frustrated by the lack of fairness throughout that process, and as a result, calling for the end of superdelegates, mm-hmm. making it so that our voices as voters is what's represented and in, in, in how we choose our nominee as Democrats, so what does this rather say than the power being put into the hands of a few select individuals. Sure. And what does it say about the Democratic Party? That we need reform. Yeah. That we need reform in, in many ways to make sure that our party, and I'm, I'm proud to be a Democrat, we've got to make sure that our party is one that's actually the party of the people, that's advocating for the voiceless, not a party that sees themselves as um, the gatekeepers determining who they feel the American people should be allowed yeah. to hear from and who they shouldn't and trying to you know, pre-select uh, those that they feel worthy to to serve as president, and and we've got to get the corruption out of yeah. our party. You know, I think it's at, at a time when so many of our leaders are are rightly focusing on the problem of climate change. Our party leadership has chosen to take fossil fuel money. Yeah, what does I mean, that say about priorities? Plus, in the most recent report that I understand, exactly. Yeah. So that, these are some of the change. I think I think this is where the people's voice is. We've got an opportunity yeah. to to put that pressure on as we should hold leaders accountable. Let them know, hey, you you're in a position to serve the people. You've got to mm-hmm. make sure that you're actually doing so. Yeah. So um, I, I know a couple of things that uh, that continually surface as ways of t- kind of d- discrediting your candidacy are um, Assad. Let's, let's save him for later. And uh, LGBTQ. Uh, comments that were made years ago, and I, I saw your, I watched your video explaining how you had evolved on that, yeah. and how you came from a very conservative family with a father who was pretty strongly anti-gay, yeah. and that it was hard to avoid, you know, absorbing some of that. Uh, but then you, you had a, a significant transition, uh, transformation even, um, and actually a lot sooner than Hillary Clinton did. <laughs> yes, somehow, somehow. Voters didn't Democratic voters didn't have a problem with her changing her position on that, and yet some of them do have a problem. Uh, they, they have they don't accept your transformation on that. Even though I again, if I think if people watch the video, they'll say, "Wow, that's there's a lot of contrition there and a, and, a, and a lot of evolution." Yeah. So I mean, what what needs to happen it's, with that to, to me, get it, it to move? It just points it just points to people who and and you know I, I've uh, I've spent time with and talked to people who kind of fall into two different categories. One are people who are uh, have already determined that they are political opponents of mine for whatever reason, and they're not open to what I have to say or or to share my own experience and and how my views have evolved and how I've actually carried through. This isn't something that just happened yesterday. 
that this is something that happened some time ago and that I made a commitment to fight for equality and have done so throughout my my entire time in Congress and something I'll continue to do so uh, as president. There are other folks who have concerns about my past and things that I've said and done, which is deserved, but they come with an open heart and an open mind. And after we've had a chance to talk and they've heard what I've said and what I've done, most importantly, um, they are appreciative, not because of anything that I've done, but because, you know, we're fighting for positive changes. We fight for equality. We fight for respect and an end to discrimination against our fellow Americans, whether it be because of orientation or gender, race, ethnicity, religion. Uh, we've got, we, I think we should hope that people would be more open-minded to maybe considering views that they, they hadn't been aware of or, or hadn't held previously. If we don't allow the space for people to change, then we as a country will never be able to move forward. Hmm. And how, how, yeah, I, guess, I guess, how do you how do you get that through to people? I mean, it just... Well, again, I mean, yeah. people are either open to it or they're not. Yeah. And for those who are open to it, what I've seen is is not only expression of, of thanks and appreciation, mm-hmm. but but a welcoming and, and very strong support. Yeah. Another issue that comes up uh, in terms of concerns about Tulsi Gabbard are the, uh, the, the meeting with Assad, mm-hmm. with the uh, Syrian leader. And, um, I mean, that <laughs> it's been hard to get the political establishment to even comment on that, or at least it was for a while. But now it seems to be something that, again, they want to raise. Uh, and at the same time, I mean, we, get, we, we see President Trump being criticized for meeting with dictators. But at the same time, and I guess when Trump does it, I don't know what's expected or what's going to come of it or what its real motives are. Yeah. But, you know, Obama was criticized for meeting with well, it was criticized by Republicans for meeting with – we're saying he would meet with world leaders. That's right. Who were of a different – Even just saying it. Even just saying it, right. right. But then when he actually – you know, when he was president, and Dem- Democrats supported that. Democrats thought, hey, that's good that we want to go out there and talk to people who might be considered enemies. Mm-hmm. So why – again, I'm trying to understand the double standard. Good when Obama does it. Bad when Tulsi Gabbard does it. Meaningless when Trump does it. I get that part. But uh, <laughs> why the different standard between – Uh, Obama in this case and you? Because I am challenging the foreign policy establishment in Washington and the military industrial complex that have held such sway over both presidents and leaders in Congress for so long, leaders from both political parties who are responsible for continuing to wage these wasteful counterproductive wars that do not serve the interests of the American people and do not serve the interests of the people in the countries where we wage these wars. What I'm doing is challenging them with the truth of the consequences of their actions and their decisions. And so, you know, they try to undermine my campaign with different smear tactics and accusations and all these things without any evidence um, because they're unwilling to debate me or talk to me really about the substance of why is it, why is it so important that we choose diplomacy over war? I'd be willing to meet with a dictator or an adversary or potential adversary in the pursuit of our country's national security and in the pursuit of peace, like many of our great leaders have done so in the past. And that that makes sense. I mean, and and President Trump was till recently intending to meet with the Taliban. Yeah. And, you know, it it, it never happened. It would be interesting to see how the both how Republicans and Democrats both would have responded. Yeah. Here's the reality. If if. If you're not willing to talk, if you're not willing to meet, uh, if you're not willing to pursue diplomacy, the only alternative is war. Yeah. That's, that's a fact. And we look to, uh, you know, Roosevelt meeting with Stalin. Stalin was a murderous dictator yeah. responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people. Uh, JFK meeting with Khrushchev. You know, Nixon going and meeting with Mao. Roosevelt working with Gorbachev on the INF Treaty. There are so many different yeah. examples of leaders doing things that may have been politically unpopular. They got criticized for it in many cases, but doing so because that was in the interests of our national security, the safety of the American people, and peace. Mm. So what did you hope to accomplish with that meeting with Assad? Uh, the invitation came, and because of all the reasons we just talked about, I accepted that invitation to mm-hmm. meet to be able to hear what he had to say, mm-hmm. and to be able to ask him a think, lot of questions that I had. Do you think anything came of it? Uh, I was able to come back, not only from that meeting, 
but from all of the meetings that I had with people, the visits that I had with people across Syria, religious leaders, Christians, Catholics, religious minorities, college students, uh, leaders of the political opposition, some of the strongest leaders who are opposing Assad. Uh, we met with children, refugees, people, uh, small business owners, people across the spectrum coming back and bringing the message that I had been pounding on for even before I went to Syria, which is we've got to end these regime change wars. A lot of people don't know we've been waging a regime change war in Syria since 2011. Yeah. And, and it's caused a lot of destruction. It's cost the yeah, American people a yeah. lot of money and we've got to stop. My impression is there's no real good guy in the Syrian war. There's just a lot of people who are being hurt and destroyed right. and, and forced into exile. Yeah. And, and what, what's happened, <clears throat> you know, we, we can control what we can control here in the United States and the actions that we take and the policies that we have. And, and the policy that we have had in Syria and this regime change war, uh, you know, using American taxpayer dollars to both directly and indirectly provide arms and support to terrorist groups like al-Qaeda – because they're the strongest fighting force on the ground to overthrow the government, um, just shows as one example how how destructive our policy has been, uh, dismissing the reality that if we were successful and al-Qaeda was successful in overthrowing the Assad government, overthrowing the Syrian government of Assad, they would take over. There wouldn't be a, a peaceful pro-democracy leader who takes over because whether we like it or not, they're not the powerful force on the ground. You would see al-Qaeda and their offshoots and affiliates take over, and the first thing that they would do is go in and assassinate Christians and Catholics mm -hmm. and religious minorities. Mm -hmm. Anyone who doesn't um, abide by their specific extreme ideology. So, yeah. you know, again, we, we've got to look at the cost and consequences of our decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen firsthand the cost of war. It's why I'm so committed to continuing this campaign to bring about an end to these wasteful wars. Yeah, well, excellent. Um, one one last question before we got to run to uh, run to the uh, end of the show. Here, we got a hard break coming up. Sure. The um, the DNC seems to be uh, doing its part to make sure you aren't included in debates. Uh, they've been very selective about which polls qualify. Yeah. And you've actually scored higher than two percent in some of the polls that the DNC decides don't matter. Yeah, I think I think we How do you feel about that? I think we've seen about 30 <laughs> polls at this point that show me uh, either meeting or exceeding the DNC's 2% uh, threshold. The DNC's only chosen to recognize two of those. Um, look, I think I think ultimately this is a this is a disservice to the people because there's a lack of transparency in how they're making this decision. Mm -hmm. You know, what polls they're choosing uh, as qualifying or accurate versus others. And, um, you know, it, it, this sows distrust in people that this is not a fair process mm. that's working for a strong and fair Democratic primary. Uh, debates are helpful because they give us the opportunity to get in front of millions of people, raise name yeah. recognition, but yeah. they're not the only way to reach voters. So, yeah, And you are spending a lot of time on the ground here in Iowa. We are. What's reaching your voters. What's your favorite Iowa story so far? Oh, gosh. I can't have just one. Well, last <laughs> night we were in Ankeny, right. uh, and it was just a wonderful crowd of people. It was our first town hall that we held there. We had some live music. Uh, we were at the Mistress Brewing Company, and uh, it was just great fun. Great. Well, uh, I know we'll be seeing more of you, and yes. folks, if you'd uh, like to keep in touch with Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, she's got a website. Imagine that. Visit Tulsi2020.com or you can follow me on social media at Tulsi Gabbard on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All right. Thanks for joining us. And folks, we're inviting all the presidential candidates to appear on this program. Again, uh, thanks to my producer, Ashley Martinez, to our post-production coordinator, Sherry Herdina, to station manager, Juan Rodriguez. Again, stay tuned if you're listening on our community on stations for more talk after this. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. GatewayMarketMarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. 
So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Namaste India is one of the best Indian restaurants in the Des Moines metro. Located at 7500 University Avenue in Clive, Namaste offers a broad range of cuisine from both northern and southern India. Namaste's menu also includes delicious Indo-Chinese and Nepalese dishes. Owner Rani Singh has been in the restaurant business for over 12 years, providing a truly unique culinary feature for Central Iowa diners. Open Wednesday through Monday for lunch and supper, Namaste also delivers to your door. That's Namaste Restaurant at 515-255-1698. That's 515-255-1698. Back to the Fallon Forum. You know, if there was ever any additional evidence needed that a climate debate is necessary, the last DNC-sponsored presidential debate between the 10 chosen candidates proved it. I mean, we had, what, uh, over two hours of debate, and just at the very end, there was some little bit of discussion about climate change. You know, and, and, and I know the, the DNC is trying to say, well, MSNBC and NBC, they're doing their town hall forums, so that's enough. You know, and the town hall, the first one was, what, seven grueling hours? And uh, as I learned, even though you could live stream the first two debates and the most recent debate from Houston, you could, you could live stream those on your computer. It was not possible to do that with the DNC, with the, sorry, with the, um, with the uh, climate, town, the, what is it, CNN climate town hall. Uh, it was very frustrating. We spent, um, oh, close to 45 minutes trying to figure that out. Didn't happen. Gave up. Figured we could watch it after the fact. Figured there'd be a link to it somewhere. No. You cannot find the CNN town hall anywhere except for a few chosen excerpts. And I don't know what to expect with the next climate town hall coming up this week. But uh, I'm going to be more careful about where I am and, and what, how I'm set up to watch it. I won't trust that the corporate media will allow me to live stream it, like they've done with the, again, sanctioned debates. 
I'll also point out that a seven hour, expecting anybody to sit through seven hours of political conversation is pushing the limit way beyond what we should expect people to be able to accomplish. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> I love, I, I'm fascinated by politics, but seven hours, uh, forget it. I mean, I, I would have had a hard time watching the whole thing even if I had been able to stream it. Anyway, um, if we needed more evidence as to why a, a climate debate is necessary, the DNC and the corporate media have only helped further demonstrate why. And to reiterate, it's not an issue. It's a crisis, and it is an existential crisis. Candidates admit this. Candidates say they want to be part of a climate debate, and yet still it doesn't happen. As uh, Tulsi Gabbard pointed out on my program today, perhaps one of the reasons is is that the DNC itself is prone to taking money from big oil. And when you've got fossil fuel money coming into your bank account, yeah, you're inclined to do their bidding. And of course, the last thing the fossil fuel giants want is a sincere, heartfelt, you know, pointed debate on climate. And again, look at the three debates so far. What have we had, 20, 25 minutes total out of, uh, what, seven hours or more of debate? Maybe, maybe 20 minutes on the threat of our time, the threat that might put an end to humanity on this planet, or at least put an end to civilization as we know it. So yeah, we've had more evidence, more than ever, that a climate debate is necessary. So here in Iowa, we are continuing to see incredible presidential candidate activity. And uh, I, I know that there are people who around the country who think, well, why does Iowa get to have all this fun? Let me assure you that it's not all fun. In fact, it's exhausting. Uh, it's, it's so exhausting that yesterday, Sunday, I decided not to go to two events. One of them was literally six blocks away, and I just, I just couldn't take any more. I needed a break. I needed a break. That was Amy Klobuchar, and, and we don't get along anyhow. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, it, it really is overwhelming, but we understand why it's valuable. And we get to talk to candidates one-on-one -on -one directly. Um, we get to ask questions. We get to look them in the eye. We get to see and feel and experience who they really are as people, not just an advertisement on a screen or, uh, or a vision on a TV. Um, we, we get to really encounter them up close. And I think there's some value to that, hopefully a value that goes well beyond what we can accomplish here in Iowa uh, at the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. The next big event here in Iowa uh, that uh, will put all the candidates within our, you know, within our uh, ability to converse is the uh, Polk County Democratic Party Steak Fry. This is coming up on September 21st, this coming Saturday. It is a day after the, uh, uh, the climate strike, which again is, is focused on fe uh, September 20th, but is intended to last the entire week. I don't quite know what to expect with this. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm very, I'm very enthusiastic about what uh, might transpire. I'm not, I'm not getting a good feel for how broad the uh, mobilization is going to be, but I, I think it's, I think it's um, potentially very important. And again, from my point of view here in Iowa, the timing is great. We have the strike on the 20th, and then 18 presidential candidates. Actually, I think it might be a little bit less than that now that a couple have dropped out, but, but uh, at least 15 or 16 presidential candidates will be here in Polk County uh, for the steak fry. Or if you're Cory Booker, the um, tofu fry. I don't, I don't know. I presume they're making some, some accommodations for uh, not just candidates, but attendees who don't eat meat. Uh, there are, so far, there have been over 10,000 tickets sold. This is going to be a big event. Uh, big in terms of, of uh, again, candidates, the number of candidates, but also the number of people, and big in terms of opportunity. And I like the fact that the, the uh, steak fry is coming the day after the climate strike because I, I think it'll be, climate will be more a, a higher priority in the news stream. Hopefully, well, again, I, who knows what the corporate media will do. They might ignore it. They ignore so much of what happens in the realm of climate. They ignore so many opportunities to tie, for example, a hurricane or a flood or a drought or uh, a, a decision relevant to agriculture or ethanol. They miss so many opportunities to tie all of that, any of that, 
to the climate crisis. So who knows what the corporate media will do in terms of covering the climate strike. I know they'll be there for the steak fryer, though. And our hope is that there will be a strong climate presence at the steak fry, that there will be multiple organizations working either together or at least in tandem to raise, this, raise the importance of climate, not just for the candidates, not just for the people who've come to hear the candidates, but for the media as well. I honestly think that our bigger challenge right now, because the Democratic candidates for the most part are making a lot of sense on climate, not across the board and not universally. And when you start breaking it down to little issues, little, little localized issues that are really, really big issues in, the, in, in, in those communities, like, like the DAPL, like the pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, when you start breaking it down to those things, that's when you start separating the candidates that really truly get it and those that don't. So, you know, I, I think, um, I, I think the, um, the, the bigger challenge, again, is, uh, again, I, I think there should be, we should keep pushing the candidates on those localized issues, but the bigger challenge is getting the media to start caring and getting the, de the Democratic Party to start caring. You know, the candidates can say one thing, but if the DNC continues to stonewall any efforts to really, truly raise climate to the level of a crisis that it is, we'll continue to see less conversation in the media. Because, you know, if the DNC decided to allow a debate, to hold a debate, either one, either to allow it or to hold it, <laughs> yeah, you would see a lot of media interest in that. They would have to cover it. They might not want to, but they would have to cover it. They would cover it. So I, I, think, um, I think a big part of our challenge at this next big cattle call for the presidential candidates is to get the uh, media to pay more attention to the climate crisis. And again, the fact that this is coming the day after the, uh, the uh, climate strike, the launch of the climate strike, that's very positive. Uh, and speaking of climate strike, uh, Greta Thunberg has made it across the ocean. She's in New York. Uh, she has participated in, um, I think she was on her first Friday climate strike in uh, Washington, D.C., perhaps. And um, we're still hoping she might make it here to Iowa. Uh, we'd love to have her uh, join us here and, and meet some of the, uh, meet some of the uh, presidential candidates who are running. But the, uh, you know, there's probably not a, a friendlier, more lovable person involved in the uh, movement to awaken the world to the urgency of climate change than Greta Thunberg. But that still won't stop the um, bullies of the world from, you know, from saying and doing things that are just horribly mean-spirited, mean -spirited, harmful. Here's one. There's a British businessman. He apparently is also an ally of President Donald Trump. No, it's not Boris Johnson. Good guess, though. He's, um, <laughs> he's a Brexit bankroller, a guy named uh, Aaron Banks. And uh, his response to the uh, story that, um, or the, 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 the revelation that, uh, that Greta Thunberg was going to be true to her principles and not fly across the Atlantic, the, that she was going to sail across the Atlantic Ocean to participate in the UN Climate Summit, he was, um, here's what he said, uh, quote, freak yachting accidents do happen. Really? You're saying that? I mean, this, this is a, 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 a prominent British businessman, Aaron Banks, basically wishing a briny death on a 16-year-old Swedish girl who cares about the future. Wow. That, that, that's, that, that's who you are? Well, yeah, I guess I can see why he's a Trump ally. <laughs> Come on, really? Uh, so it, it's just it's just incredible to me that people like that even exist, but that they aren't. A, some of them, they're so shameless they can even say things like that in public. Yeah, freak yachting accidents do happen. Well, fortunately, no freak yachting accident happened. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know where else. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've heard of other things that have been said, um, but uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm blanking on them right now. So uh, again, Greta Thunberg is uh, in the U.S. Uh, with her dad, I think, and uh, participating in the uh, UN Climate Summit uh, that's coming up. Um, it'll take place uh, during a three-day period, uh, September 21 through 23rd. 
at the UN headquarters in New York. Um, there's a youth climate summit on Saturday the 21st, same day as our steak fry here in Des Moines. Uh, that'll be an open meeting that um, involves uh, young activists like Greta Thunberg. It also involves entrepreneurs and um, change makers. And that's, uh, again, also the first, well, it's the second day of the, uh, the, uh, the global climate strike. So um, the, uh, and I believe Greta Thunberg is going to be speaking at that, uh, that, um, that event. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Again, I don't know exactly what the, uh, what the intent is to uh, accomplish, but, but um, we, we need it. We need, we need this summit. We need more summits. Uh, we need enough summits to the point that we have action. And um, again, maybe we're getting to that point. But um, again, the, the, the head of the UN and, and many others who are paying attention within the uh, structure of, uh, of, uh, of the world's largest um, multi-nation organization are pointing out just how critical it is that we have you know, a, a clear momentum toward net zero by 2050 at the latest, and that, that again, I have a feeling that as conversations continue, there's going to be agreement that 2050 is too late, that we've got to get to net zero long before then. Anyway, um, lots coming up this week. The, uh, the next climate town hall, the, UN, the, uh, the climate strike starting on the 20th, the uh, Polk County Steak Fry with all the presidential candidates, and of course the UN uh, Climate Summit. There's uh, no shortage of important things happening that will make a difference in whether we pull through this crisis moment or not. Again, this is uh, Ed Fallon thanking you for joining us on the Fallon Forum.